Welcome to International Tax Bites, designing the perfect international taxation system. This is a short series of episodes which focus on the design and functioning of the international tax system, each featuring a guest who has expertise in the international taxation arena. We hope you enjoy it. So, Harriet, here we are again today for another episode in our Designing the International Tax System um, series, which seems to get longer every day. Uh, <laughs> Graham is getting a little bit fed up of how long it's taking to get this, but, you know, I think I'd, I'd refer you to the Guinness ads of the 1990s. <laughs> it's worth the wait, yeah. No, look, it will be. It is worth the wait. We've got a great guest today. Uh, do you want to... What, what are we actually talking about, first of all? So today we're talking about the development of the international tax community and the legislative process that's gone on, particularly in the UK, um, which sort of precedes the situation that we now find ourselves in. And yeah. we have a first-rate guest to do that, which is Sam Mitha, CBE, who um, he has a wide range of experience working at the heart of government, but that includes leading the tax policy in HMRC and HR policy in the Cabinet Office. He was HMRC's Deputy Director of Tax Policy Group until 2014. Um, he was responsible for co coordinating HMRC's advice to Treasury Ministers on the Budget and Finance Bill and in advising Ministers on the delivery and impact of new tax policy. Um, he's also been responsible for leading HMRC policy on the structure of income tax and NICs and business tax. He led the development and delivery of legislation on bank payroll tax, research and development tax credits, film industry tax reliefs and self-assessment. And back in the day, Sam is a man of uh, very great experience. Uh, he was a district inspector of two offices um, for what was then Inland Revenue and he was a member of the Inland Revenue International Technical D D Division, where he was responsible for combating tax avoidance by multinationals, as well as being involved in the design and delivery of the offshore and overseas funds legislation and the implementation of the controlled foreign com the controlled foreign company legislation. Um, he now writes extensively about tax policy issues. Uh, including the fiscal impact of the diffusion of AI-infused robots, basic income hypothecation, tax simplification, uh, small companies, COVID-19 and inflation. Um, he lectures on tax policy issues and is a member of the IFS's Tax Law Review Committee. Um, he was awarded CBE in 2014 in recognition for all of his work. So we are very excited to have him here. And hopefully after talking about all of his accolades and experience, we've still got some time left to talk about tax. How did we get Thank it? <laughs> he said, Thank yes, you I so think. much, Sam, for coming on. What an ex, you know, it's, we do have some, some people with experience and, and thinking uh, you combine, seem to combine everything you've done. You've been everywhere and done everything. I didn't stay anywhere for long. Uh, but I've had plenty of opportunity to, to look at things and think about them. And uh, as far as international tax is concerned, I think I probably know more about international tax now than I did when I was working there, uh, mainly because I've had the opportunity to look back and see, ah, that's what was going on. Uh, so I, I hope I can share some of that information with you if you're interested. Uh, we're very interested. And it seems to me that possibly there is a, a lot more international tax now than there maybe was when yeah. you were working in it. Yeah. Uh, well, Harriet, the, the thing about international tax is it was almost a guilty secret as far as the old inland revenue was concerned. Okay. Uh, 
the, 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 there wasn't very much need for the inland revenue then in the, we're talking about the early 80s, up to the early 80s, to do very much work on international tax because you had very stringent exchange controls in the UK. Uh, and you also had uh, statutory rules prohibiting the, um, the, the migration of UK companies abroad. That's the old section 482. Uh, there was transfer pricing legislation, but wait for this. The people working on transfer pricing weren't allowed to mention the statutory reference. So, you know, people were, people were investigating transfer pricing, but they couldn't mention the statutory references. They can't. If, you, if anybody who came came in into the department in those days and looked at, at at the guidance sent to tax inspectors would have been amazed that such an important issue was covered by one paragraph and literally thousands of pages of instructions, one paragraph on section 485. There was no training. I've, I've, I've seen some modern revenue guidance and I've got to say it doesn't surprise me that much. No, normally the bit where you feel, I really need to know what HMRC thinks yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah. Oh, that's just the legislation written out without the section numbers. You like that's it. That's it. <laughs> that, that, that's exactly it. Um, I think what happened was that the inland revenue was frightened of the political sensitivity of uh, investigating international tax avoidance, and um, the legislation that was in place, um, especially specifically the foreign exchange and the uh, the company residence rules, were backed up by criminal sanctions. So nobody was going to tinker with trying to smuggle money out of the UK. Uh, and uh, I, I, well, I, I'm never going to get a chance to mention this again in my life yeah. on this podcast, right? Yeah. So I'm just going to mention that my grandmother was arrested for foreign exchange. Oh my foreign exchange irregularities in the 1950s. Oh my God. For, um, or passing money to a solicitor in London and he would send it to a jeweler in Switzerland and then she oh would fly goodness. and pick up the jewelry and come back to Sheffield. And it was so shameful they had to move to Nottinghamshire to avoid the shame in the <laughs> Oh my God. Have you checked the statute of limitations on this, Graham? No, she was definitely she was found guilty of everything. There was it was there was oh a my fine. God, she's already paid, paid for a crime, and they confiscated <laughs> all the jewelry. And uh, yeah. and now both my parents have passed away. I can freely say that <laughs> without any shame. That's fantastic. So, Sam, maybe uh, particularly for some of the younger um, listeners, if we have any younger listeners, Graham will know. Graham knows all the stats. Uh, what are exchange controls? Uh, well, at the start of the Second World War in 1939, uh, the British government imposed controls on the transfer of British currency abroad and required any inward uh, foreign foreign currency coming in. Uh, to be effectively monitored and uh, and and sold through the Bank of England, so you know there were controls on moving UK currency abroad, and there were controls on bringing foreign currency in, into the UK. There were controls on selling UK assets abroad. Uh, you know you couldn't just say I've got a uh, I've got a big house in Bermuda, I'll sell it off, and keep the money abroad. If you sold off a property or anything outside the UK, you know you were required to repatriate the capital to the UK. And the Bank of England held on to it. Um, and similarly, at the start of the war, the British government decided that they didn't want British companies to run away. So it said you could not migrate a British company without getting permission from the Treasury. Uh, and this is pretty, 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 pretty basic stuff you do in, 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 in a wartime, war, in, in wartime. But the remarkable thing here was that these controls were retained for a very long time afterwards. Yeah. And uh, they it wasn't just big money, was it? It went right the way down to people like my grandmother. Yeah. 
my father laminating <laughs> bankers drafts so that he could take money out for his holiday. I mean, it was, yeah. Uh, yeah uh, you, well, I think there was a restriction of you could only, if you were going abroad on holiday for four weeks in France or something, uh, all you were allowed to take out was 50 pounds. Yeah. That's I know prices I were lower the, there. But, from you the know, family just, story. Yeah. yeah. So it, it was really very tight. And, you know, the Bank of England like, literally had hundreds of people implementing it. And then in 1979, shortly after Mrs. Thatcher was elected uh, prime minister, or the Tories were elected and she became prime minister, uh, Jeffrey Hart, her first chancellor, removed exchange controls. Now, you'd have thought that a momentous decision like that would have been the subject of consultation. But obviously, given it was a commercially sensitive decision, uh, hardly anybody knew about it before it happened. You know, Mrs. Thatcher knew, obviously, and Jeffrey Howe knew, and the permanent secretary to the Treasury knew. I think they telephoned the governor of the Bank of England and told him what was happening. But, you know, yeah. the these exchange controls can be likened to, you know, opening up a hot pressure cooker. So, I mean, I, what Jeffrey Howe said when announcing it was they have now outlived their usefulness. The essential condition for maintaining confidence in our currency is a government determined to maintain the right monetary and fiscal policies that we shall do. It is right to give an additional degree of freedom to allow the pound to operate in the world unrestricted by restraints of this kind. Yeah. So and of the, course, Harriet, it, 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 this was an essential bit of the, Mrs. Thatcher's vision of liberalising business in the UK. And now the removal of exchange controls, the first impact was not the inflow of capital from abroad and new investment, but the outflow of capital. Now, there were a lot of frustrated businesses which wanted to invest abroad, but there were a lot of other people who wanted to, to, to leave, take their capital out of the UK to avoid tax. And so the, the beginning of the 80s uh, marks a sea change in, 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 in Britain's approach to international tax avoidance. Because he had a long period of continuity because of these wartime restrictions and the, the transfer pricing regulations that everybody was too frightened to invoke. Um, and what you then had uh, was was the removal of kid gloves. You know, the inland revenue said, <clears throat> we're going to take international tax avoidance seriously. Uh, and we, we, you know, embarked on a process of undertaking research into the scale of tax avoidance. Uh, which they presented to Treasury Ministers. And, and so it, how, how long did that take after the exchange controls were abolished? Uh, well, obviously, Inland Revenue wasn't consulted about the removal of exchange controls because people might be tempted to say, you know, well, why did they lock the doors after the bond, you know, the horses had bolted. Uh, all this had to be done after the removal of exchange controls. Um, it happened, the earliest manifestation of the, of, of, of the new approach and the removal of kid gloves was the production of a very important consultation document uh, that was published in 1981. And this is a really far-reaching document, uh, which, which, which colored uh, international tax legislation for, for a generation because it, it, it foreshadowed the introduction of the controlled foreign company legislation. Uh, it, also, it, also, it also contained draft clauses on company residents. Um, now, country, company residence, as you know, in the old days, was based on case law. Where was a company centrally managed and controlled from? And, and the, 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 the case law spoke about where was the residing, controlling brain residing? And here it was in 1981, uh, the Inland Revenue was publishing draft closes 
on, on, on company residents. The third thing it covered was upstream loans. Uh, the controlled foreign company legislation was introduced a couple of years after that, uh, but we didn't get legislation on company residents for a long time after that. Uh, and you know, all, this, this is a very important document because it's the first time ever uh, that the Inland Revenue had been open about what was going on. And you know, it was only possible uh, because they'd spent a lot of time researching it. The more remarkable thing about it is they researched what was going on without asking the companies anything because there'd been a hesitancy to ask companies anything about what they were doing overseas. Was there any interaction with foreign revenue authorities? So was there any sort of collaboration at that stage? Uh, I was going to say the main collaboration with, with, with foreign, foreign tax authorities was in relation to double taxation treaties. Uh, Britain, as you know, is one of the most extensive double taxation treaty networks uh, in, in, in the world. And so a lot of effort was put into developing, maintaining and extending the treaty network. Um, there were the usual competent authority exchanges, uh, but uh, most of them are bilateral. You know, Britain, uh, uh, Britain's wartime alliance with the with the with the Americans uh, was the backbone of international tax cooperation uh, on tax matters. Uh, Britain had been a member of the EU, European Community for a while, but you know, the one thing you learned very early on was you never talked to any members of the EU about tax. <laughs> uh, I wonder why. And that, that persisted for a very long time indeed and may still be in place. For Can I ask a question, Sam? Yeah. So one of the themes that's running through these these different uh, episodes that we're doing with, you know, we've spoken to people from the Tax Foundation in America, from the IMF, from the and, yeah. and, and with you people who are uh, properly in the international world, and they all seem to go back to the thing that you just put your finger on, that, that the removal of the exchange controls globally in the 70s there is an, an, an essentially firing the starting gun for globalization yeah. yeah a necessary consequence of that is the ability to avoid tax by moving money around yeah. internationally yeah. Yeah. yeah because in the old days everything was locked tight you know even if you wanted to avoid tax you couldn't do it because you know you had all these people i think the bank of england that I, I, I haven't been able to track down the number again. I think they had 700 staff monitoring foreign exchange controls. Wow. They all had to be made redundant when exchange controls were removed. Uh, and a lot of the money that went abroad uh, was from the multinationals and British companies. Uh, but equally, uh, a lot of individuals sent money abroad. Uh, and the Inland Revenue Consultation document was concerned mainly with companies. Um, now, I came into uh, in the international tax section, having been moved from um, an advisory section in the head office, which had not been very congenial for me, um, uh, because I don't like doing that kind of work. Uh, <clears throat> and I was brought into the international tax division uh, to join a team that was set up to introduce legislation to tackle tax avoidance by individuals. Um, in, the, in the early 80s, the Sunday newspapers the financial pages were full of how easy it would be to avoid avoid um, uh, tax tax on investment income or reduce tax on in investment income by, by simply sending your money abroad to the Channel Islands and investing it in so-called offshore funds. Um, <clears throat> and that gave you the ability to accumulate your capital, the, the investment income you'd received and transmute it into capital gains, which were taxed at a lower rate. Now, income tax rates had started coming down. 
but capital gains tax was still charged at a lower rate than the higher rate of tax. And investment income, uh, until the abolition of the investment income surcharge, uh, was effectively discriminated against in the tax system. Uh, the section I was in dealt with tax avoidance by individuals. Uh, but the special investigation section, which dealt with, uh, uh, with tax avoidance by individuals and companies, uh, persuaded uh, the board that uh, the International Technical Division should draft the legislation because they claimed they didn't have the expertise. Uh, and so um, I hadn't been paying any attention to what had been going on because uh, it, this wasn't my area of work or my area of expertise, but <clears throat> Nigel Lawson, uh, issued a press release um, saying that he was determined to stamp out tax avoidance through the use of roll-up funds. Roll-up in the sense of instead of paying uh, investment income out, we simply rolled it up. Then redeem the, <clears throat> the unit and that's a capital gain. That's it. Um, not that we knew about this at that stage. It doesn't work now, by the way, if anybody's listening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so so uh, what happened was that... Um, uh, I, I've left a section where I'd been for six or nine months, where I hadn't been very happy. I come into international technical division, and I joined a team which uh, which was led by a very visionary uh, revenue official called Ian Hunter. He was the head of international technical division. And I joined um, three other colleagues. That was size of the team. Policy work is characterized by small teams. Um, and they, they, they included the the head of the policy team, a man called Michael Cayley, uh, two of the cleverest people I've ever known in my life, Tony Beecham and Howard Williams. Uh, they were tax inspectors and myself. And we started working on this. And our very first task was addressing the question of what is an offshore fund? And my very first task as a member of the team was to write a report on what was an offshore fund. So you had ministers saying, we're going to stop this. But we didn't know what it is. We Without just... any definition of what it was. Yeah, yeah we didn't have So, it. So, Sam, just as a, 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 yeah. to interject there for a second, do you, yeah. think, do you think that that, that movement in you know, the, 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 the Lawson-Howe movement to lower income tax rates, um, that there was a trade-off that avoidance would have to stop now? That almost like the, the complaint is the rates are too high and that's how you yeah. justify that you're doing this morally yeah. internally and therefore we've lowered the rates now now it's time to to comply properly and stop being clever uh i don't think it was ever implicitly or explicitly put in those terms graham uh and at the end of the day um tax is usually the biggest uh, biggest biggest indent on anybody's income whether it's five percent ten percent it's still a very large chunk of money uh and what you had was the issue of all this money that had just been accumulated in the UK, which had been searching for a haven, not a tax haven or anything. It, you want people wanted, you know, there were a limited number of investment opportunities in the UK. Yeah. So legitimately, businesses were keen to invest abroad. Uh, and individuals were very frustrated by the fact that uh, personal income tax at one point reached 98%, because the, 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 the tax on inc earned income was 83%, and then there was an investment income surcharge of 15%. And people with large amounts of capital uh, were very keen to earn money on this. Uh, so the, the, the offshore funds movement was very straightforward because these were, these were effectively unit trusts set up 
were investment trusts set up by subsidiaries of British banks. And what 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 the offshore funds did, uh, and you know, I discovered that there are fifty seven different varieties of offshore fund. <laughs> and you might be amused that in terms of research, all we had, because we couldn't ask anybody anything, uh, I was given a box full, literally a box full of 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 brochures from these funds, uh, which had been collected by various colleagues uh, by writing off to these funds, pretending to be investors. Uh, and that's all we had to draw by way of information. It was it was before the internet, right? Obviously, uh, I mean, of course, yeah. It took a long time. Hadn't uh, even been invented. Uh, now, in the in those days, of course, there was no consultation. Can I just stop you there? Harry is yeah. looking at me, say because she's doubting whether the internet had been invented at this point. The World Wide Web hadn't been invented at this point, yeah. Harriet. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, uh, there was no. Right. There was no consultation. And, uh, you know, when it came to developing legislation, the inland revenue was like a watertight drop. Uh, we couldn't go to, there were undoubtedly people in the city of London who knew how, how many different kinds of funds there were or how they operated. But we didn't have, we weren't allowed to talk to anybody about it. All this work was done in great secrecy. Uh, as a matter of fact, we weren't even allowed to talk to colleagues within the inland revenue about it. We could go to them and say, we're dealing with something where we needed some help, but we couldn't announce to the whole department that we were doing this. <clears throat> so this was a form of avoidance, right? This wasn't it, evasion. It was you weren't you weren't looking at people who were hiding their income by depositing that's it. Evasion. People were yeah, hiding. That's yeah. You weren't so, you weren't looking at that. You were looking at structures yeah. that worked legally but circumvented that's it. The rules that's by playing presidents and characterization yeah. of, uh, yeah. of of gains, right? Okay. Uh, Graham, that's a very key insight. What what people were doing was perfectly legal. They owned the money. Uh, they wanted to put it, they were legally allowed to take it out of the UK. They chose to put it in these, 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 uh, uh, these investment funds, uh, mainly in the Channel Islands. Uh, and of course, the unique feature of these funds that, 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 that had excited, uh, excited concern was um, in the old days, most of the offshore funds were effectively equity trusts or funds which specialized in it, reinvesting your capital and then redistributing the income to you. What was unique about these funds was that it, it gave you the facility to roll up the income. Uh, the other very important thing about these funds was that uh, when you came to cash them in, you got almost exactly everything you'd put in plus the accumulated income very low transaction costs and of course that was a huge asset for people with high net worth because yeah. they could choose when they when 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 they did it because instead of paying interest uh, a tax on interest as it arose whether it was from uk bank accounts or overseas accounts they could decide when they did it like you, you could realize the the income uh when 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 you cease to be a resident when you right, okay, so yeah, yeah. You, move, yeah. you move to the Isle of Man the day you retire and you yeah, cash all your unit trusts in, right, okay, and then yeah. everybody's happy. Uh, and of course... The, well, except the, the revenue. And of course, the, the, what, what was the gravy for most people was the fact that it transmuted income into capital gains. And that 30%, that was still significantly lower than the higher rates of tax. You know, during the Thatcher years, income tax rates came down to 40%, but 30% was still better than that. And they had added yeah. advantage of deciding what to do. Um, and in the early years of the Thatcher years, they were still at sixty percent, weren't they? I mean, we, when we yeah. talked to Dominic Sandbrook, yeah. the the historian, yeah. we, uh, we 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 highlighted the fact that those seemingly radical 
slashes in income tax would, you know, you'd still claim that that was very high. Yeah, because when Jeffrey reduced income tax rates, he abolished the investment income surcharge, but he brought down the the rate of income tax on an earned income from 83 to 60%. That's a pretty significant drop. And yet uh, still very high. Still very high. By today's standards. Yeah, yeah, very, very high. Uh, the So, you know, there's there's the three of us working together in in, in, in the internet on the technical division and the policy chap uh, that I mentioned. I mentioned the names of my colleagues because they were the ones who did all all, all the clever stuff. I just arrived new in the section. Uh, the um, I I remember vividly that the key key moment of insight for us was first of all the fifty seven different varieties of funds. This report I produced was a key document because it said we can't just clobber all, all, all overseas funds because the majority of them are not doing anything wrong. So we needed to focus on the funds where the mischief was occurring, namely the roll-up funds, and find a way of exempting everybody else. So, you know, we we, gotten, we latched onto mechanisms such as we, want, we don't want to tax funds that distribute all their income. We don't want to latch onto funds that invest in equities. Because uh, you don't invest in equity, you, you can't avoid tax by investing in equities in that way. Um, <clears throat> and the, the, I remember the huge excitement, and it was real intellectual excitement of realizing that the way to identify the funds on which to impose the charge was to impose the charge on funds which gave you the facility to obtain net realizable value on your assets. Uh, as you know, when you invest in any kind of unit trust or investment fund, your share is conglomerated with everybody else's. Uh, and when you try to cash it in, you know, you're never going to get the, the underlying asset value because it's going to be sold on the market. But here was a facility where you, your bit of the investment retained its, it didn't retain its identity, but it retained its value. And it could only go up. And you would get back the underlying net asset value of what you had put in less, less transaction costs. Uh, <clears throat> It was a very exciting time. We, 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 we spent all our time in preparing instructions to council, uh, obviously in consultation with ministers. And we explained to ministers that, that there's all these different types of funds. And ministers made a claim that they were only interested in the funds that were being used to avoid tax in the manner that I described. Yeah. Uh, we told ministers that, you know, you, effectively people would still be able to avoid tax by choosing when they, when they cashed in their units. They say they weren't interested in tackling that. And, and this is how we ended up with our offshore funds regime. Yes. Yeah. In the yeah. UK. Yeah. 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 And so how did, so that, that, that's a regime that focuses primarily on individuals. And it seems to me. Yes, it does. Yeah. How, how yeah. or why did the focus shift to, because I mean, if we look at the situation now, the global community, the global tax community, if there is such a thing, is very focused on corporate yeah. avoidance. Yeah. How how did that focus change? Well, Harriet, you again. The I was only describing the bit that I was in. Uh, the after the publication of the nineteen eighty one consultation document, which was focused entirely on corporate entities. Uh, I'm describing what happened in nineteen eighty three, but in nineteen eighty one, uh, when Inland Revenue produced its consultation document, that was focused on. It said we need legislation on controlled foreign companies company residents and upstream loans. Ministers gave the go-ahead for the development of legislation on controlled foreign companies. 
and that should legislation. We just, should we just pause there yeah. for a second and think about what yeah. a control foreign company is and what a, what a CFC rule is? Though yeah. we have done an episode before on this, haven't we? Yeah. So a control foreign company is essentially, is it not, um, a subsidiary entity in a different country that yeah. that that the, the parent, yeah, uh, controls for want of a, a more dazzling word, yeah. Um, yeah. and you can uh, without any rule, then you can um, as the parent, you can simply cash into your controlled foreign ent- foreign subsidiary that pays a lower rate and if there's a participation exemption up to the parent then yep. it will take that take any dividends out um yeah, yeah. by way of but sort of take things out by way of dividend and it will there will be a lower rate paid yeah whether it's zero yeah. 12 and a half whatever it is yeah and graham um, just a, a few caveats on that the first is you could put money into the offshore overseas subsidiary uh and you know, remember we talked we talked about exchange controls. Yeah. So you know, if you put money, if you wanted to invest money abroad before exchange controls were removed, you needed to effectively persuade the treasury that you were buy you were you were say investing in a factory or something. Uh, yeah. The removal of exchange controls meant that you could put the money you invested was just simply cash. You set up an overseas company without any restriction, uh, and the only asset that the company initially had was uh, you know huge amount of cash. And you would the, the the underlying story was we are looking for investment opportunities, but in reality, what what following the removal of exchange controls happened uh, was that this cash was simply invested in bank accounts overseas. Uh, and the other bit of the other caveat was that these companies were alleged to be resident. Word alleged is very important in this context. They were alleged to be resident in low tax jurisdictions. No point in putting your money in a country which charges the same rate of tax as the UK. You know, you wanted to be in a country where the tax rate was nil or practically nil. Uh, and then, of course, because it was a, a, an independent company, even though it was controlled by the UK company, it could make decisions about what it did with the accumulated income. It, it didn't have to make a dividend to the UK company. It could, it could give a loan or you could simply keep on accumulating it. Uh, some yeah. of the overseas companies were set up for notionally business purposes like um, insurance, reinsurance. Or, or routing transactions, uh, which were effectively being used for abusive transfer pricing. Uh, and the controlled foreign company legislation was very extensive. Uh, and the remarkable thing about it was the huge amount of consultation that went on. Uh, and it was a very bruising experience for the Inland Revenue to produce the legislation because the companies uh, that were affected and their representatives were very vocal. And in Mrs. Thatcher, they found a very strong champion. The so, control for company le- legislation nearly didn't make the statute book. On, on behalf of every um, uh, CTA student and ADIT student who's yeah. studying the CFC rules, because I did that module for my ADIT, yeah, right, right. Is, does that explain why they are so complicated compared to mm-hmm. simple ones that just say, yeah, it's a CFC. You're taxable unless you can show a motive or, or yeah, yeah. Uh, motive tests, uh, which you've just alluded to, was a late uh, an add-on that came in afterwards. Uh, the there was such a sustained attack on the CFC provisions led by the CBI, uh, with Mrs. Thatcher effectively acting as 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 somebody who made it clear that she wasn't happy with what was happening, 
but you know, the Inland Revenue produced reams of evidence for ministers to show that huge amounts of money were being lost. And uh, you know, when I arrived in the section in 1983, it was still touch and go whether the legislation would be included in a finance bill. Wow. So the draft law clauses had been published. They'd been extensively amended. Uh, large bits of the legislation had been changed. Uh, a motive test had been added. Uh, but you know, in 83, when I arrived, we still didn't know whether it would be included in a finance bill. Uh, they were even included in the finance bill after some very important compromises by the inland revenue. Uh, but you then ended up in a situation that the finance bill for 1984 was dominated by international tax legislation. You had more than 40 pages of legislation on the CFC provisions, very complex, as you said. Uh, and you had almost 40 pages on the offshore funds legislation. Uh, the offshore funds legislation was drafted by the same parliamentary council as the CFC provisions. A very famous uh, head of the office, uh, as he became, Peter Graham. Uh, and, you know, we, we produced a list of instructions. We produced instructions for council. Uh, now, as lawyers, you'll be aware that in most government departments, instructions to council are actually produced by departmental lawyers. In the Inland Revenue and now HMRC, uniquely, the instructions are actually written by the officials. Uh, and we, 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 we sent what was practically a paperback book to the Office of Parliamentary Council to say, these are the instructions in the offshore funds legislation. And, you know, I'd nev never experienced this because it's a massive undertaking. Uh, Peter Graham was a remarkably gifted uh, parliamentary council. And, you know, we, we, in the course of a day, we'd received five or six letters from him. Uh, we had to actually time the letters so when we were responding, we knew what we were responding to. <laughs> uh, and the other thing was, all this, all this was being done within a very small team, uh, no external influence, because when you're dealing with producing legislation, you want somebody else who's, who's, who's not closely involved looking at it. Yeah, that does help, um, having an external voice. So that, go, that, so that it, you're saying that the political process did it undermine the original draft? Was there an original draft that got you know people with pens going yeah, they, at it and, CFC, and fiddling CFC, with it and adding in amendments and exceptions yeah. and the CFC provisions uh, were quite different by the time they they entered the finance bill and after they entered the finance bill, they were changed again because you know there were a lot of people out there who'd been involved in the provisions right from day one. The offshore funds legislation, number one, was far more complex than the CFC provisions. And secondly, it had actually been instigated by a minister. The Inland Revenue hadn't got up and said, we need an offshore funds legislation. It had been minister who then became the chancellor. <laughs> and the committee stage of these two, two measures, if you ever managed to get the 1984 committee stage hearings of the finance bill, were dominated by debate. The debate on the CFC provisions was by people who were very knowledgeable about the legislation. Uh, by contrast, the debate in the committee stage on the offshore funds legislation was one of bafflement. People didn't understand it because, remember, they'd only seen this legislation when the finance bill was published. Yeah. Uh, so they didn't understand the offshore funds legislation because they'd never seen it before. So when you look at, the, when you look at say, the Anti-Tax Avoidance Directive CFC rule, yeah, which can be boiled down to maybe a couple of paragraphs. Yeah, yeah. Do you look at that and think, "I wish we'd managed to do that"? 
Um, well, remember, remember, given the way legislation's drafted in the UK, uh, we would never have got away with it. Uh, you know, everything had to be spelt out. Uh, and Ian Hunter, who was the visionary head of the Technical Division International, he, his health was eroded, as a matter of fact, from the fight to protect the CFC provisions. Uh, the, the revenue had a massive team dealing with it uh, because they were checking to see what evidence there was about the amount of tax lost. Uh, they were also investigating law tax havens because you ended up with the list of excluded countries. Uh, with the offshore funds legislation, we were, we were in a cocoon. Uh, yeah. And the first thing that happened when, we, you know, the committee stage was was really odd because uh, the opposition, and there was only one member of the opposition who actually understood the legislation, who was an investment banker by background. Um, nobody else in the committee understood the legislation. Uh, and the professional bodies that had actually made representations uh, weren't able to comment on the legislation to the same depth that they'd done on the CFC provisions. Uh, I remember this vividly, that the committee stage finished at about two or four o'clock in the morning, uh, and that when the opposition MPs turned to the minister, uh, they, they complimented him on the advice he'd received from officials because they hadn't been able to lay a finger on us. Uh, uh, and John Moore, who was the financial secretary, said that he regarded his officials with veneration because, you know, again, he had no clue as to what the legislation was about. It's never a great position, is it, for the legislators no. to be so... So, But the, the, the key to what... Uh, well, the great innovation yeah. is that last-minute addition, the motive test, right? Yeah, on the CFC provisions. On the CFC provision. Yeah, and that, I, I, is that the key to the fact that you can now draw smaller pieces of legislation because you're not trying to cover every possible outcome? You can just say... What's the motive? What would a reasonable person think of yeah, this? Yeah. And but then, Graham, therefore, you're in, you're not in. Graham, I think this is an isolated innovation. Uh, and remember, I, I had come in without any great background in the CFC provisions, other than what I saw happening around me. I made the mistake of telling Ian Hunter, who I mentioned to you a couple, a couple of times before, that I described the motive test as his brainchild, and he got very cross with me. And I couldn't understand why he was cross with me. It was only subsequently I, I realized that it had been actually foisted on, on, on the revenue. And, you know, that kind of approach to legislation didn't become, uh, wasn't used again for a very long time. So the revenue didn't like the motive test? No, well, no, absolutely not. Uh, <clears throat> when we finished the offshore funds legislation, the first thing we did was to write a commentary on the provisions. And we handed over all the papers and the commentary to the team on whose behalf we drafted the legislation. And then the members of the team that worked on offshore funds became among the founder members of the CFC implementation team. And what, what had happened is that during the course of the enactment of the legislation, ministers had given an undertaking that the CFC provisions and the offshore funds provisions, because of their complexity, would be administered by head office. That had two effects. One was obviously you had a dedicated team that would have the expertise. But the other one was that they were more politically, they're more vulnerable to political pressures. So again, when we started on the, implementing the CFC provisions, the first thing we did is we prepared a commentary on the legislation, which was published and made available to so people knew what, what, what the rules were. Uh, and when we started investigating these cases, you know, you wouldn't believe kid gloves is not the right answer. It's like wearing half a dozen pairs of gloves. 
were very tentative in investigating CFC provision, the application of the CFC provisions. We wrote to multinational companies uh, and asked for details of, uh, of, 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 of what overseas subsidiaries they had in the tax haven countries. Can you please explain what you're doing? Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, well, well, as Hinsley Graham, we, and we knew that they had offshore subsidiaries in these havens because of an invaluable publication called Who Owns Whom? Uh, now, what I'm describing has never been previously revealed, but this is how these, these uh, we, there were information provisions in the CFC uh, legislation, but we couldn't invoke them because it needed an order from the board, the Board of Inland Revenue, to invoke the information provisions. So we, we're effectively writing to people saying, tell us what offshore companies you have. And it meant that we went for months on end with no, no work because nobody would reply. Let me tell you something that actually happened. Um, uh, Mrs. Thatcher was very fond of certain businessmen who, who, who ha happened to head large multinational companies. Please and tell I me everybody's dead before we go yeah, any further. Yeah, well, I, I was going to say, I'm not going to mention any names, <laughs> but, you know, uh, I, I, I was investigating one of these companies. And when I came into work one day, I discovered that Private Eye had published a long article on the overseas subsidiaries of this company. As soon as I got into the office, my, 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 my boss came shouting at me and said, had I leaked any information to Private Eye? It turned out that Mrs. Thatcher had actually phoned up the board, a member of the board of the Inland Revenue, and torn a strip of him and said that the CFC provisions had been used to obtain information about this company, which had then been leaked to Private Eye. Uh, I sat down uh, and I prepared a table which showed the information that they had sent me, which was very little with information in private eye. Uh, and uh, this was then communicated to the board member who then went back to number 10 and said, there was more information in the private eye article oh. about the overseas company than there was in the Inland Revenue's files because they'd never given us any information. Uh, how, how private eye had obtained the information was beyond me. Uh, but you know, this is the kind of environment we were operating in. Completely insane. I used to work with a man called Chris White um, uh, who, who would tell stories that weren't a million miles away from that, but I won't go any further because he, he is still with us. So I don't want to get in trouble. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, to make, raise an assessment under the CFC provisions, you needed a direction from the board. Uh, now, under the CFC provisions in those days, to decide whether there was a charge, first of all, there had to be a controlled foreign company. Second thing was the, you compared the chargeable profits calculated by reference to UK tax rules with the amount of distribution they would have to make to escape the charge. And of course, any well-advised firm would very often just compare the two of them because it didn't make sense to pay a large dividend if the controlled chargeable profits were much lower. And um, you know, in the very early days of the, the controlled foreign company legislation, the very good advisors of one of the large companies came to me and said, we are not going to pay a dividend, an acceptable distribution, because we'd rather have an assessment, because when you computed the profits under the UK corporation tax rules, it produced a lower number than the amount of tax that would have been payable on the acceptable distribution. So they actually saved, raised an assessment under the CFC provisions. So now I couldn't, as a member of the division, I couldn't raise an assessment. I had to go to the board. And I was effectively grilled by the board to say, why do you need to raise an assessment on them? This has been enacted already. But they were concerned about the political sensitivity of us raising an assessment under the CFC provisions. 
uh, I had to repeatedly explain the rules. So to that sort of um, control, I think, is the word that I'm, and I, I wouldn't cast any aspersions on our current prime minister, um, or on your current prime minister. My my, my current chief minister is a great fella, um, but the uh, it, it has that changed? Has the level of control from the board changed as the problem has become more publicly discussed? So as it becomes more of a concern to the public, they've let yeah. the fetters off and let let the teams just go. Yeah. Um, Graham, I was subsequently, many years later, in charge of policy on self-assessment. And the, the, the International Tax Division team to which I'd belonged came to see me. And they said that once corporation tax uh, assessment by self-assessment came in, they were thinking of including the transfer pricing provisions and the CFC provisions. So this is an eye-opener for me. In other words, they'd done away with the requirement for the board to agree all these things. Yeah. Uh, but it was necessary because, as I say, the introduction of the CFC provisions was touch and go. Yeah. Uh, and the Inland Revenue had readily conceded that, you know, the board would authorize assessments and authorize invest uh, the invocation of the information powers. Um, and, uh, you know, this was necessary. But, you know, as, as, the, as, as the numbers mounted up, and especially since in the light of what happened next, because when, when we did start getting any, any, any information from the large multinationals, the very first thing I used to do was ask them uh, for evidence that the so-called overseas subsidiaries were actually resident abroad. And very often when you started looking at what the, the evidence they presented for saying that something was resident abroad, there were nothing of the sort. Yeah. You know? So uh, to, just, to, to just fill that gap in, obviously you've got to, the, the foreign company has to be resident abroad yeah. for the CFC rule to apply. But if yeah. it's actually being managed and controlled by UK. UK, just telling yeah. Yeah. Patsy number three in whichever ta uh, low tax jurisdiction what to do, then it's not subject to the CFC rules. It's just yeah. subject to UK tax. UK tax rules. Uh, and we in the old days, it would have been inconceivable that a tax inspector, even in the most grand tax offices, like the one I headed in the city of London, for, for them to ask for for information about the resident status of an allegedly overseas company. Wow. The CFC provisions meant that we could say, look, we need to know this because if you're going to be subject to the CFC provisions, you need to be non-resident. But what was the what was the thinking there? <laughs> like what was going through people's minds? That's the obvious question to ask. Yeah. yeah. Why uh, was it was it gentlemen don't ask other gentlemen if they're cheating? Was it um, you know, we all we all went to the same school together. What all those ridiculous cliches about Britain in the seventies and eighties, or was it just a lack of understanding on the part of the team that they could ask that question? Well, I think they couldn't ask that question, Graham. That's that's a sad bit of it because these companies were controlled by people who were very well connected politically, and you know, the ministers were very sensitive that the Inland Revenue was preventing. British-controlled multinational companies or British headquarters multinational companies from competing overseas. So the, the, the what would be fed to the Prime Minister and the Chancellor would be that the Inland Revenue is interfering in the operation of our overseas activities through our subsidiaries. Yeah. Uh, and, Graham, I'm not kidding. When, when, when the information started coming in, you said some incredible stuff there. Um, in some instances... We were told that they'd intended the company to be non-resident, but they'd never got around to doing anything. This is <laughs> after the event. Years right. after the event, uh, 
In other instances, what you had were, you know, effectively uh, executive officers of the multinational company issuing instructions to the allegedly independent directors of the overseas companies saying, do this, do that. The minutes would be manufactured. They would send us, you know, nobody actually had any understanding of what they were sending us. So we'd get draft minutes drafted in the UK for the, for the overseas company to rubber stamp, alleged overseas company to rubber stamp. And now here's another remarkable thing. People who look at this now would say, didn't these people get clobbered for interest and penalties or something like that? Now, I've never been comfortable with investigation work and I make no pretense that I don't understand it. But that never happened, even in the most blatant cases, such as we intended it to be resident overseas, but it was never resident overseas. Uh, we just settled for them accepting that the company was resident in the UK. We didn't charge them with failure to notify chargeability. We didn't charge them with willful default. They were never charged interest. We just settled on assessing the company in the UK or the payment of a dividend after the company. It was agreed that the company had become UK resident. Um, and in relation to the most complicated bit of the CFC provisions, the motive test, uh, I had a, I had a, I had a, I had a standing rule that I was never going to admit anything through the motive test, and it led to some very intellectually stimulating discussions with 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 with, with some very clever people acting on behalf of these companies about whether or not they should be let out under the motive test because the motive test is a fiendishly complicated mechanism. And I, I think motive tests. Um, I, I, Revenue authorities aren't aren't a massive fan of them because I think they're quite no. difficult to they're yeah. quite difficult to police, aren't they? And they are. I mean, particularly I think we we saw with the um, GAR when that came and we sort of got the yeah. double reasonableness test. And when in well, a that's just daft, isn't it? In a different context, when um, uh, when you look at the old and the new motive test under the um, transfer of assets abroad rules so the pre 08 the december december 05 and post december 05 or whatever it is tests um they've tried to tweak that but essentially you're saying we need to look into the mind of or you look need to look into the controlling minds yeah decide what that controlling mind thought and that's obviously very it's hard enough for a court um, I imagine it's much worse for for a revenue official yeah yeah so it's double-edged sword right it makes some things easier yeah and it probably makes actual enforcement harder probably easier to have a go and more difficult yeah. to actually come to a conclusion well i must say actually the number of companies that actually tried to use the motive test was relatively small and the ones that i got involved in were very well advised and you know it, it, it was uh, after you got used to the cfc provisions they were pretty mechanical uh in in terms of their structure but the motive test was pure, pure, pure intellectual argument. And, you know, it, 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 you, you found yourself saying, but we're going round and round in circles. But that's the fun the kind bit, of description Sam. that Harriet just described. You know, what, what's going on here? Whose mind are we in? It's, it's, in it's my not mind, fun. I think this is going to work. Um, but I, I, I must say, actually, the, 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 the impact of the introduction of this legislation also introduced a very important change uh, to the to the treatment of multinational companies, which was that once the legislation was enacted, the 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 international division decided that the period when there'd be no guidance uh, and that there'd be no training for people on dealing with international taxes had to end. 
So it embarked on a massive training program for the people who were in charge of all the large offices uh, to teach them about the new provisions. Uh, and it introduced something which is still in use, which is joint working. But you know, the the the, the there were the people working in head office were very small in number in terms of they've already handful of people or whatever. Uh, but you know, there were large numbers of equally well trained people in the local offices who could start these inquiries. And it'd be easier for one official in head office to provide advice to half a dozen people than actually dealing with the case themselves. Uh, and of course, the the level of the guidance that was provided uh, could be moderated by reference to the fact that all these people had been put through the training. Uh, I used to be involved in training people before they got promoted. And uh, the level of training provided on international tax, which had been non-existent when I'd gone through the same training myself, now occupied an entire afternoon and an entire morning till noon on the following day. So, you know, I think it, it was something like eight hours of training. Wow. Uh, in the course of a one-week course, eight hours of training was delivered on international tax training to, to these relatively young people. Uh, and the knowledge and experience they gained meant that it became easier to, 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 to go back to ministers and say, look at the amount of money we're raising through these mechanisms. But it took a long time to change the other legislation. Because, for example, I remember attending a meeting of the OECD fin uh, Compliance Committee, and I was rather t taken aback that the other members of the, co the OECD Compliance Committee, instead of focusing on, on tax avoidance through the use of tax havens, attacked the UK delegates. And what did they attack the UK delegates for? Uh, for facilitating the creation of so-called nowhere companies, because they, they, they were frustrated by the fact that you could incorporate a company in the UK uh, and it could be resident nowhere in the world because it wasn't automatically resident in the UK. Yeah, so they, they, yeah, they, they, they had an issue with Ireland with that as well, didn't they? And yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. So if you uh, let's just again explain that because uh, yeah. if if you if you rely solely on a management and control test and yeah. all your managers and controllers are in different places, yeah. where are you centrally managed and That's controlled? It. Right? Yeah, they're nowhere companies, nowhere companies, uh, and and of course dual resident companies. And, you know, a lot of the problem was actually explaining to ministers what the, what the nature of the abuse was. Uh, but, you know, what ministers were very keen to hear was evidence of how much tax was being lost. So first, what you had was legislation against dual resident companies, and then a statutory definition of company residence was introduced, whereby UK registered companies were automatically resident in the UK, the introduction of the exit charge. But all that happened after I'd left. Uh, mm. I wasn't directly involved in them. So uh, you mentioned you mentioned the OECD there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously the OECD is the centre of everything at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Which is ironic, actually. You know, that what's happening now with the introduction of the minimum, minimum tax charge and all the rest of it. In those days, if there was any kind of any strategizing by the UK, UK delegation, it would be in conjunction with the Americans. There wouldn't be any 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 kind of intention of talking with anybody. But, you know, you'd talk to them when you were at the committee. But bilaterally, you wouldn't dream of talking to the French or the Germans or anybody. As a matter of fact, you'd probably need ministers to do that. And it wouldn't, be, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be forthcoming. Ministers were not keen on, uh, you know, you could talk to the Americans. And there were very good relations with the Americans, uh, um, uh, particularly through the competent authority arrangements. 
and 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 other bilateral arrangements. But you know, there wasn't a lot of lot of thought given to the fact that hang on, the people who are avoiding tax are cheating all of us. Um, it, it 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 was quite 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 a realization that. So so let's let's look at let's think about pillar two and the IIR the income inclusion yeah. rule, yeah, which I may have occasionally um said it's just a fancy cfc rule yeah <laughs> um, in my head it's not that he hasn't said it it's just that it would be wrong to characterize the amount of times he's said it as as being something akin to occasional yeah <laughs> you know it's it's crossed my mind once in a while that uh, the iir is essentially really just a sort of a, a cfc rule with all the complexity and the motive test taken out of it, and it's simply being mechanical. If you pay less in this jurisdiction, we'll charge you this in your home jurisdiction. Yeah, yeah. Is that something akin to what you wanted to do originally? Yeah, well, I think the the original rules were were devised in a uh, one of the things that that in the old days when you when the department the inland revenue was dominated by tax inspectors. Uh, what what you had to realize was that this is a focus not not dissimilar to that of an engineer. Uh, you know, if if you want to hit a target, you find the most most straightforward and simple way of hitting it. But making tax policy, as I've said in my articles and in in in, in various other places, and which which I often say in 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 my lectures and talks, is is more of of an issue of art because you're operating in an intensely political environment. And so the original rules were actually rather mechanistic and very direct. But as they discovered, and it took them a long time to, 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 to get this down to pat, uh, if you're operating in a political environment, sometimes you have to take detours uh, and, 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 and do things which, which to, to somebody who's only focused in going in one direction will not necessarily understand. Um, so now the original CFC rules benefited from the fact uh, that they were exposed. The draft legislation published. Many of the people whom I know and regard as friends in, in amongst amongst private sector tax professionals were directly involved in all this. Uh, and I know them to be people who are actually uh, as, as, as interested in the integrity of the tax system as anybody working in the revenue or HMRC. And they just wanted to make it work right. But, you know, if you're operating in an environment where you don't have very much information, and you're working in an environment where you're not being very, you're not being encouraged to be sensitive to the political environment in which you're operating, uh, then then you're going to end up with provisions which don't work very well. Uh, but here's here's the thing: both these major pieces of legislation have recognised at least to the test of time. Both of them have been amended, but they're still. If 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 I came in after forty years and looked at them now. I would say, hang on, I remember these bits and I remember those bits. I, I don't know where this came in from and I don't know where that bit came in from. But that that is a remarkable tribute, actually. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the best legislation often is one which doesn't need to be invoked because people know you effectively put them out of business. Uh, uh, here's an interesting take on the offshore funds. There is still an active offshore fund roll-up industry because it's being used for the bit that ministers weren't keen to tackle. The fact that you can choose when your income arises. This, this for is super exactly. wealthy individual. You can decide that's very valuable. You know, we went to ministers and say this is a very valuable advantage. But they didn't want to tackle it. 
This is exactly why I, I know the offshore funds rules um, uh, as old friends, because as you say, yeah. there's still there's still there's still an active um, industry in in that, and there's still an active professional industry in advising whether or not you're caught by them. <laughs> yeah, and I was going to Harriet. You you will. I'm not going to mention any names. I don't know the individual uh, and and whatever. There was a very wealthy individual in the UK who used to write a column in the Sunday Times. He used to boast about the fact. Every every issue of his articles, every every time every time he wrote an article, he'd boast about the fact that he had this massive overdraft. But then he'd, he'd as an aside, say, I'm not worried about it because I've got all this money invested in the Channel Islands. And he knew jolly well what he was talking about. He'd invested his money in, 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 in a roll-up fund. Uh, I think in that particular instance, because it, it, it became an issue of controversy, the, the, the roll-up funds were not cashed until after his death. So his executors <laughs> cashed in, in, in the roll-up funds. Uh, I often wondered how, he, how he'd managed to secure an overdraft. They were obviously secured on, on the roll-up funds. It's some kind of back-to-back -back arrangement. He didn't. He didn't go into that detail. But they have, you know, for somebody who was that wealthy, you know, they'd be crazy not to use it, and it's perfectly legal. Uh, but all this has been tackled now because you know the the, the mechanism for deferring income. Uh, I think under the roll-up, the income on roll-up funds is now taxed as it arises to the roll-up fund. But yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You'll have gathered because I've been involved in so many other things since then. Uh, I, I, I retain uh, that, interest for this. Yeah, I think that may have come in with the last set of changes, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah, And the environment has changed because, you know, the fact that there is now a great deal more information and transparency about what's going on. Uh, the rest of the provisions, you know, a lot of the mischief that, that, that was going on. Uh, could not be tackled because we could not come up with evidence for ministers to say this is how much money would be raised by closing down um, the use of upstream loans or whatever, uh, or thin capitalization or whatever. Uh, you know that evidence had to be painfully gathered, uh, and you know a huge amount so of effort. I think I think now there's a sense, isn't there? What you seem to be describing is you had to justify every provision that you wanted to introduce, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And UK was not the first person in the world to introduce thin capitalisation rules. It certainly no, wasn't no. the first to introduce CFCs. That was the Americans in about yeah, 1950, yeah, yeah. whenever it was, right? So I think now what we have globally is a is a feeling that there is a standard set of provisions that yeah. everybody has. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. And that, that argument, that conversation that you had to have is we're, we're in this position and we want to move to that position. Nobody now needs to justify to their minister why yeah. they should have a CFC role. Yeah. If they haven't uh, and Graham, Graham you've, you've touched on something very important because the first thing is <clears throat> now, when I gave a lecture recently, um, I, I listed uh, some changes in international tax rules. Uh, so I was talking to a bunch of bunch of masters of law students, and I I, I I explained to them that tax is now tax has always been very important, but it's now a mainstream political issue. And you know, ministers, you know, in 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 2010, uh, when when the coalition government was in power, uh, you know, it was quite obvious that people like people like David Cameron, who was the prime minister were very sensitive to what had happened with the uh, the Indian revenues difficulties with you know, the HMRC's difficulties on with the so-called sweetheart deals, yeah. which involved multinational companies. 
And do you remember that famous statement by David Cameron? He said to the multinational companies following a riot in central London with some coffee shop or something, or with tax issues, uh, he told the multinationals, wake up and smell the coffee. You, know, you can't do this. And then, of course, there's a whole string of provisions that came in the diverted profits tax uh, and and the all, all, all the various initiatives with the let's OECD. Not, let's not stop to start talking about that. Um, yeah, but the, <laughs> uh, the key issue here, actually, is reputation. Yeah, companies have realised that they damage their reputation by engaging in tax. So, but but do you do you do you sort of see that the, the you know the fact that you had to justify yeah um, applied democratic oversight to you as a technical person yeah, but um, now that it's just sort of a menu of things that every country should have to be welcomed into the international tax community yeah, not every country needs. Uh, a CFC rule because maybe their tax system means that CFC rule is semi redundant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, he, so so sad to say, I'm going to talk about Gibraltar again. Gibraltar has a territorial only tax base. Yeah, for yeah. corporates, a CFC rule doesn't make any sense. No, no, but no. we have one because the EU said we had to have one. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's a nonsense. So, um, but we are, a, 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 we were a, a compliant territory of the European Union, therefore we implemented ATAD in the way that we should uh, but it but it just doesn't make any sense so in a sense that we maybe we've gone from you had to work too hard to explain to a to a minister to the default position sometimes just doesn't make any sense yeah yeah but graham i would say that what ministers were doing was completely right and proper because you should never have a situation where officials tell ministers to do things ministers are, are entitled to and have a responsibility of actually making sure that what they're being told by officials. Uh, there is evidence for it, that it's not going to damage the UK standing, it's not going to damage companies or whatever. Now, many of these are things that I don't think many of my colleagues in those days would have necessarily agreed to with. Because, you know, you have to live in a world in which you you understand that tax is not the be-all and end-all of everything. Tax is so, one of the issues. So... This is the, the, where I'm driving at with this. Yeah. We have a position now with the OECD, which is proposing very, very technical, highly complex systems. Yeah. I, I don't doubt that a large number of the technical people that went from tax authorities around the world didn't understand them in October 2020, yeah. whenever it was, 2022, uh, yeah. uh, tw October 22, when it was signed, that they didn't, it wasn't even fully developed. The room for that democratic oversight, hit, well, this is the question, is the room for that democratic oversight that you were subject to now entirely squeezed out, that people uh, sign up to this because this is what we do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, as a matter of fact, my worry, actually, uh, and I don't make myself popular with, with, my, with my former colleagues on this, is that, that the pendulum has sung too far the other way. Uh, I have seen, without being directly involved in them, even after I'd retired, I've looked at legislation, I've heard about legislation, and said, didn't anybody question the revenue authorities about why this was necessary or whatever? Now, the only thing that's changed, I think what's actually happened, number one, is that politicians have realized that appearing to be soft on tax or tax avoidance is bad, bad, bad politics. And the second one is that it's almost as if a readiness to just jump into action every time you mention the word. Uh, I, I must say, actually, in advising ministers, I'm always firmly on the side of ministers and saying, 
it is really important that before anything's introduced or anything's agreed with uh, through multinational multilateral arrangements, that we are actually sure this is necessary. Is this proportionate? Is it timely? Do you feel uh, that the reliance on guidance, because the rules are so complex, yeah. is is that are we subcontracting legis legislative power to the OECD guidance drafting people? Well, in as far as international tax is concerned, there has been a huge amount of influence wested in, in the OECD guidance. So I mentioned earlier that when transfer pricing inquiries were launched uh, in the old days, officials in the UK were not allowed to mention Section 485, uh, but they could actually refer to the OECD guidance on transfer pricing. And many of the discussions were conducted using the, the OECD guidance. And you know, the, the, you've seen how influential the model treaty provisions are. Uh, and what what we, the OECD rules actually apply to a large number of countries, not all of which have the same degree of legislation, legislative sophistication. So it actually provides, um, I think it's sort of uh, the mental model of, of concepts, uh, which, which, which are necessarily applicable to everybody. They won't be identical with the mental model, but they're recognizably influenced by that. I think that's one issue, and this is on the OECD side. And there's no no substitute for the fact that you know the OECD models should not be the legislation. Uh, it's very important that legislators in the individual countries actually think carefully about how they want to implement them. Uh, the other bit, of course, is 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 that you know the circumstances to which you're being applying them. You mentioned your example of Gibraltar was brilliant. You know what's the point of having a CFC provision in a country which has got a territorial based tax system? Uh, a lot of countries actually feel that they're not fully fledged nation states unless they have the full panoply of <laughs> legislative tax provisions. When actually it's the other way around. They should they should have the panoply of what they need. That's, what they need, yeah. That's yeah. the exercise yeah. Yeah. of sovereignty. Yeah. Yeah. Only yeah. do what you need. Yeah, but there's another aspect to this. This is in terms of domestic guidance on legislation. And again, I'm I'm afraid I'm not always popular with my former colleagues for saying that when you tax individuals or companies. It has to be done by reference to the legislation. The guidance produced by HMRC, whether it's for external use or internal use, is precisely that it's guidance. It's not legislation. Uh, and guidance for staff can't be used to say, all right, this must be taxable because of what guidance says it's taxable. Yeah, you, no, you may just made made yourself my favourite guest ever. Yeah, no, you're fantastic. Uh, uh, so many. Uh, it's not just <laughs> the people in the tax authorities; it's the advisors as well. Yeah, well, says, and you say and and. But the legislation uses completely different words that don't yeah, cover yeah, that. Yeah, why yeah, are you? Yeah. Why are you? Why are you pr uh, privileging guidance over legislation? Oh, because yeah. that's the way the revenue are going to take. Uh, going to approach it. Well, I don't care. They're wrong. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now I was going to say actually. A lot of this goes back to uh, people dealing with the tax affairs of relatively small taxpayers. If, you, if somebody is dealing with the tax affairs of a small business or something, uh, the last thing in the world they want to do is get involved in courting legislation to tax inspectors. So they will often tell their clients, let's draw up these accounts in line with HMRC, HMRC guidance, because that's, that way it'll ease the, the agreement of the accounts. Most of the time, there's relatively different, little difference, but that doesn't apply when you're dealing with large and complicated issues. The guidance is produced at a level of generality, and even in even even revenue staff are actually told this is guidance; it's not legislation. 
And people are really, really, you know, I'm always impressed by people who can read legislation. I've never been able to do it myself. I've, I've been involved in writing lots of it, but I've never been very, very, very good at reading any of it. I, 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 as a matter of fact, I, I'll be very honest with you. The only, I've been involved in lots of pieces of legislation. I can only, the only thing I remember is the years in which they came in. The detail of it is not something that, that, that I've understood when I was writing it, let alone afterwards. Don't tell us but, this you know, now. It's really important. We've spoken really for important. an hour and 20 minutes. I think yeah. one of the most difficult things about, I think you, it's, it's from the perspective of, say, of the practitioner, you sit there, you try and apply the legislation and you think, well, why on earth didn't they think about this? This, but of course, you can't think of everything. No, no. Uh, um, well, I, 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 I do always feel sorry for people who have to draft legislation because I know how many times I curse them and then go, no, 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 you can't, you can't possibly cover off everything. You think, you think, Harriet, another like a maze, is, don't you? Yeah, but Harriet, another aspect of it is that you can't put yourselves in the shoes of the person who was involved in advising, but uh, instructing council to draft the legislation because you're not aware of the pressures they were operating under vis-a-vis ministers. You know, ministers are, uh, are, are, are closely involved. You know, they, they won't be involved in every sub-close or section or whatever. But, you know, any, I've, I've spent most of my life being a policy official. And, you know, I, I, I regard it as, as a matter of great pride that I can actually explain. I may not be able to read the legislation, but I can explain it in simple terms to ministers because that's the way I understand it. Which is a skill that they itself. should understand it, yeah. yeah. Being able to translate you, tax legislation for somebody who is not tax conversant is is an immense skill. If, if but you, they need to they need to be aware of it because they're the ones who are going to go and tell because there won't be very many people in parliament who will argue with the minister. And you, you know, you might say they're just reading off what we've written for them, but you know, no self-respecting minister. Yeah, yeah, but that, that that's even if you're reading if you even if you're reading it out, you're exposed <laughs> if you don't understand it. Yeah. Um, and, if you can't explain the legislation simply to somebody who isn't a, well, maybe in a complicated way, to a, to somebody who's not a tax person, yeah, then the legislation won't work. Yeah, and there have been ministers who've been very clever, and either because of legal training or simply pure intellect, actually understand the rules uh, in in a way far better than even the officials do. Uh, I have seen exchanges on as part of my role. I saw all the kind of all the kind of guide all the kind of responses that went from officials to ministers on issues. And from the responses that ministers said, it's obvious that many of these ministers actually understand uh, understand the rules to a depth and to a level of understanding which 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 say new officials don't always understand. But I don't think that's I don't think we've got that now with what's coming out of the OECD. I don't think no. Because it's such a weird process as well. It's like they're yeah. drafting it in front of us. They're just spitting out guidance to revise the guidance that they gave that went further than the model rules went. And you know, it, it's it's a it's an odd process. There was well, what a, a worries me. What worries me is the implication that um, that if if you're giving up or abandoning our right as a nation state to you know when it comes to legislating any of this, the rules themselves can't apply a charge. They've got to be legislated. And if they're being legislated, that that legislation needs to be cleared with with ministers in the UK, and ministers have have a, have a duty and yeah. a responsibility to to understand why it is that they're doing what they're doing, and so whether you, it actually is relevant and apt for for the environment and the and the UK businesses. Also. So you're wholly against the sort of New Zealand approach, which is to say we're going to implement the model rules of what we're implementing, and they should always be read in accordance with the guidance, and then just let go. 
Uh, I would never feel comfortable doing that. I would never feel comfortable doing that because uh, one of the great strengths of our legal system is the fact that you know we've got safeguards in in the fact that anything of any consequence has to be explicitly legislated. Uh, you've got people of the caliber of the Office of Parliamentary Counsel, uh, you know, uh, who, who will do this and 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 will make sure that we 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 stick to the rules. Uh, a lot of my life has actually been spent working with not just with my colleagues from my own department. I've worked in other government departments as well. I spent a long time working in the cabinet office. But the common denominators are that, you know, you need to be able to satisfy yourself and that you need to be able to satisfy yourself that what you're doing is right and be able to explain that to ministers. Uh, and, you know, ministers are not going to trust you unless you actually, they can see that, you know, you understand it well enough to explain how it fits in in this context at this particular point in time uh, and in the light of, you know, one of the big, big changes in creating legislation uh, over the last 40 years has obviously been consultation and, you know, bringing in, uh, exposing legislation uh, and having having professional tax advisors engaging in the process actually improved the quality of legislation. Because just imagine if you're drafting 40 pages of legislation, the first time anybody sees it when the finance bill is published. That's, well, that's great. great. So tax advisors, more work for tax advisors. I think that's a brilliant place to leave. Um, Thank you so much. Um, But but Harriet's got one final question. We have one final question that we've been asking everyone, which is what one thing do you think is essential to designing the perfect international tax system? What one thing can, can we not do without in order to have a really good working international tax system, be that to do with process or legislation or whatever? I think it would be what what I just mentioned a minute earlier. The international tax system uh, is 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 a nebulous entity. You know what you're talking about is how a UK tax system uh, incorporates international tax provisions, and and to do that, you need to be mindful of the fact that it is actually something which which has to be visibly relevant uh, and visibly linked to, to to you know even if it's completely unconnected with the domestic tax system. It needs to be grown from that kind of kind of kind of mechanism. Sorry, it's not not a very eloquent way of explaining it. But it, basically, what I'm saying is that it needs to be something that's been intermediated through the same mechanisms. You know, right? So, process of discussion with colleagues, discuss, explaining to ministers, and and of, of fundamentally, uh, no matter what the strength of the international agreement is, it needs to be domestically legislated and drafted by Office of Parliamentary Council to be enacted by Parliament with open I, debate. You know, I think the three of us absolutely agree on that. <laughs> we absolutely do. I mean, we could we could talk we could talk for another three hours about capacity yeah. of, of of smaller jurisdictions to do that, but I think yeah. Yeah. that's definitely the gold standard. Okay. Well, thank so, you, thank you for being so patient and understanding. And sorry if I've if I've gone 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 off, off, off message on many things. No, Sam, it's been absolutely thank fascinating. Thank you, thank you so me. much. Thank really you so much. much. Thank you. So thank we you. always do a little health warning um, because there were some section references in there that we're, where we battered sections around so this of course is not advice it's just a conversation between three people talking about tax that has been one of the most interesting episodes that we've ever recorded for me i don't know what you think harriet thank you absolutely um, and we'll share you all we'll share with you all of the episodes as a series of eight or nine episodes yeah and we will we will come up with there will be a this is for anybody who's listening there will be a final episode in which harriet and i draw all the threads together um to, possibly 
Possibly. Hopefully, hopefully we'll try and we'll try and do you justice, to be honest, Sam, because that was absolutely fantastic. It really thank was. Thank you, thank so you much. very much. Thank you. Thank now, you very much for inviting me. No problem. <laughs> thank you. So just to say goodbye to everybody. Goodbye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.